Several days before Christmas, I headed over to the Choices grocery store on Canby Street, not far from our home. And I walked up to the woman at the cash register and said, I would like to pre-order a turkey. And she said, with avian flu, we're not going to be selling any turkeys this year. I asked, well, do you know of any other grocery stores that might be carrying them? And she said, no. My heart sank because we were inviting someone to our home from Afghanistan. I thought this might be his first opportunity to have a turkey dinner at Christmas here in Canada. It, it, it was his first opportunity. And, and then I, I also knew coincidentally we were having someone else over who worked in Afghanistan and we knew he loved turkey. The woman ended up being wrong. They had some turkeys, they just weren't taking pre-orders because of avian flu. Have you ever been in a situation where you were hosting people for, say, a meal, and you realized just before that you were missing something essential for the meal? Or maybe you were hosting folks at an event, and more people showed up than you realized, and you thought, I'm not going to have enough food. And, and you, you fretted over that. Well, imagine that anxiety multiplying several times over, and you get a small glimpse into what the couple at this ancient Palestinian wedding would have felt because they were missing something absolutely essential for their celebration. Now, weddings in the ancient Hebrew world of the Bible were a much bigger deal than they are for us today. In the ancient world, a wedding ceremony was not just seen as an occasion where the couple would experience great joy, but also as something truly joyous for the whole community. You see, a wedding meant at least the possibility of children coming into the world, which in an agricultural economy meant potentially more hands to work on the farm. Potential children coming from a marriage also meant that there might be more soldiers, so a more secure military. And so a wedding wasn't just a joyous celebration for the couple, but it was a joyous celebration for the whole town because they knew they could benefit from this couple's union. A wedding in this ancient world was also, for most people, the most important event of their lives for the, for the couple themselves, especially if they were from a poor family background. Today, a wedding ceremony might last 30 or 45 minutes, followed by a reception. In this ancient Hebrew world, a wedding would typically take place at night, and then after the ceremony, the couple would be taken on a scenic tour through the town. They would be led under a canopy with torchlight. They would be seen as king and queen. They would even be wearing robes and crowns. And as they would make their way through town, they would greet the townspeople who would come out to them and, and wish them well. And then after the ceremony, they wouldn't head off to Tofino or to Hawaii or the equivalent. Instead, they would take their money and invite the whole town for a week-long wedding feast. A groom and his family might save 
his entire life for this event. And they would pride themselves in being able to offer hospitality for the whole town for a week. And the most important part of the hospitality was the serving of wine. Because in this world, wine was seen as the symbol of joy. So with this in mind, let's listen to God's word from the Gospel of John chapter 2. We read in scripture, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Let's pray. Living God, as we look at what your unique son Jesus does at this wedding in Cana, give us a window into what he can do in our lives as well. May we know his transformation, his power, and his joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're beginning a new sermon series as we approach Easter on people's encounter with Jesus in scripture. And as we look at their encounters with him, we'll see what can happen to us as we encounter Jesus, how we can experience his transformation. Now, as we saw in the text a moment ago, a wedding is taking place in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus and his disciples have been invited. But then partway through this week-long open house wedding feast slash reception, the wine runs out. Now, according to Professor Reynolds Price, who for many years was a distinguished professor of literature at Duke University, what we read in the Gospels is not fiction. Based on the way things are written, the literature itself, Professor Price says, this is not stuff that's just made up by people's imaginations. The people who are writing are clearly eyewitnesses to the things that Jesus did and said. And part of the way we know this, according to Professor Price, is because of what Jesus is portrayed as doing as his very first miracle. Professor Reynolds Price asks the question, why invent for the inaugural, that is the first sign of Jesus' great career, a miraculous solution to a mere social oversight? No one would have made something like that up. So what Professor Price is saying is this. If the writers of the gospel, see some folks that have just walked in. There's some seats near the front if you want to sit. Okay, okay, or you can sit there as well. What was I going to say? Um, they would not have had Jesus intervening to help a couple overcome a mere social oversight. If they were making this stuff up, they would have had Jesus intervening in a truly life and death situation. And Professor Price makes a good point that we can be confident that this actually happened. But when Professor Price describes Jesus intervening to help a couple overcome a mere social oversight, he is exaggerating a little bit. Because, as I mentioned, this event would have been the greatest occasion in the life of the couple. The groom and his family would have saved their entire life for the reception. And in a shame and honor culture, 
running out of wine, the most important ingredient for the reception, would not have been a mere social faux pas. It would have been an absolute disaster, humiliating in this shame and honor society. And so what happens? We see Mary, Jesus' mother, at work behind the scenes. She's apparently close to the couples because she's helping with the meal preparation. And she knows before the others do that the wine has run out. Now, Jesus up until now has not performed any miracle, but his mother has a sense that he, her son, has these special powers. Mary would have known better than anyone that Jesus' birth had been a miracle. Mary would have also known of the various prophecies that had been spoken over her son's life across his lifetime, including a prophecy offered when Jesus was just an infant by an older man named Simeon who prophesied that this child would be used by God as a light for the nations. Mary would have known that John the baptizer had identified her son Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior figure. So Mary has a sense that her son can do something about this humiliating experience that the couple are about to face. And so she approaches her son and in verse 3 says, they have no more wine. And Jesus responds, woman, why do you involve me? By the way, when he says woman in the culture and time, it's not a rude remark, okay? (laughs) Just the way they spoke to each other, uh, in case you were wondering. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. This expression, my hour has not yet come, is is one that Jesus uses over and over again in the Gospel of John. And it refers to the time when Jesus will be crucified on a Roman cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus has recognized that that time has not yet come. And perhaps he's pondering, as he contemplates the possibility of a miracle where he produces wine, that if he does this miracle, that the religious leaders will envy him, they'll see him as a threat, and they will initiate his execution, and it's not yet time for him to die. So he doesn't offer a direct response to his mother, but his mother says to the servants around him, do whatever he tells you. And as one commentator says, Mary is willing to ask anything, but willing to yield everything. Mary is willing to ask anything, but also to yield everything. So what happens? The servants look to Jesus. Jesus says, you see these six stoneware pots? So these were stoneware pots that contained 20 to 30 gallons of water that was used for ceremonial hand-washing in this ancient Jewish world. Uh, the, The six stone pots together would have contained between 500 and 700 liters of water. Jesus says, I want you to fill these stone pots to the very brim, each of them. The servants do that. And then Jesus says, I want you to take pitchers and and dip them into the water that that has been used for hand washing and take them to the host of the wedding banquet, which they do. The host doesn't know that this is dirty water that's been turned into wine. And so the host sips, sips the wine, 
And he says, amazing, astonishing. Looks at the couple and says, well done. Most couples, they, they, they serve their best wine first and then after everyone is too drunk to know the difference. They serve the cheaper stuff. Well done. Amazing. You've done the exact opposite. You've saved the best till last. And in verse 11, we read that this miracle, at, in fact, the word miracle isn't used. We're told that what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee at the wedding was the first of his signs that would reveal the glory of God. So this obviously is a miracle, but it's not described as a miracle. It's described as a sign. And a sign points to something greater than itself. A sign points to something beyond itself that's more significant. So as Jesus turns water into wine, what is the greater, more significant thing that is being pointed to here? We get a clue in the book of Amos, chapter 9, Verse 14, earlier in the Bible, when God says to the prophet, when the Messiah, when the Savior of the world comes, one of the signs will be that vineyards create wine. And wine in this world is a symbol, as we've said, of joy. And so when Jesus turns dirty water into wine at this wedding, it is a sign that the Savior of the world has come, that God is breaking into the world in a fresh, new way through Jesus, in a way that brings joy. And so how do we partake of this new wine, of this joy that is being offered by God through Jesus? Well, Mary's action gives us a clue. It's Mary who says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. In other words, yield to what Jesus says. And part of the gateway into this life of new joy is to turn to Jesus and do whatever he tells us to do, to do whatever he asks of us, to yield to him. And sometimes that ask is at least initially painful. He might ask us to make amends with someone that we are experiencing or with, with to reconcile with someone. Or Jesus might ask us to cut off a relationship with someone. Or Jesus might invite us to turn from our sin toward God, with God's help, of course, which the Bible describes as repentance. That may be painful at first, but it leads to a pathway of joy and newness and new wine in our lives. To experience the new wine of Jesus, we can also invite his spirit to indwell us which is the spirit of joy. Dallas Willard was a great teacher on the spiritual life whose writings have really enriched my own. He died some years ago, but while he was alive, he traveled from time to time teaching on spiritual practices at various places. One time he went to South Africa to teach, Mark Cunahan's uh, country of origin. And Dallas describes how one of his hosts took him to a beach at Port Elizabeth. And Dallas describes how he and his host were climbing this hill, walking up this, this crest. And when they got to the top and looked down, Dallas said, I was just stunned by the beauty of the ocean and the beach. The gorgeous blues, the teal, the teal color of the ocean and, and the waves crashing onto the shore. And Dallas said, I just began to walk slowly toward the water. 
And then I realized God sees this beautiful water from every possible angle. And he sees scenes like this in billions of other worlds. And then Dallas thought, God is the most joyous being in the universe. And when we invite the most joyous being in the universe to live in us, we experience the invigoration of new wine, of new joy in our lives. If you were here at one of our services in the fall, you may recall that a woman named Leanna, who's part of our community, was baptized. She stood here, uh, the screen was lifted, and she said something like this. I was raised on the downtown east side in a home with bars across the windows. And when she said that, I thought about the words in one of Gabor Mate's recent books where um, it was written, tell me your postal code and I'll tell you how long you'll live. In other words, where you are raised will shape your health and longevity in most cases. She said, I was, I was raised, I grew up on the downtown east side. But then she said, in so many words, I was able to overcome some of the challenges associated with my postal code. I was able to check off a number of boxes that people associate with success. I graduated from UBC, check. I established a successful career as a pharmacist, check. I got married, check. Had children, check. Was even able to buy a home here in Vancouver, check. And she said, despite my successes, I was not able to break free from a relentless depression that lay hold of me. She said, I exercised, I engaged in gratitude practices, mindful meditation, took medicine, took CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, all of which, by the way, can be helpful for some people, but she said, none of these lifted me out of my darkness of despair. And then a few years ago, Leanna started coming to 10th. She pursued a spiritual journey and met Jesus Christ. And just before her baptism, she said these words, I no longer feel like a prisoner trapped in despair. I've been given the freedom to be me, the true me. I no longer look at life as something to be endured, but something to cherish like a precious gift. So thanks to Jesus' presence in her life, Leanna said, I no longer feel like a prisoner trapped in despair. I've been given the freedom to be the true me, to see life not as something just to be endured, but as a gift to cherish. She was describing a new joy that was in her life thanks to the presence of Jesus. And when Jesus' life comes into our existence, we experience a new kind of vitality, a new kind of joy. Some of you feel that if you really yield your life to Jesus, really turn it over fully to him, you'll miss out. The exact opposite is true. I felt that way when I was a teenager, that if I really gave my life over to God, I would miss out. And then someone shared with me, as I've shared with some of you, the verse in John 10.10, I had no idea, that Jesus said, I didn't come that your lives would be boring or dull. I came that you might have life to the very maximum in all of its fullness and all of its abundance. I gave my life as fully as I knew how to Christ, and I found that I had a fuller, more joyful life. And so we can know the joy of new wine 
through yielding to Jesus, through his presence in our life. But we can also know the joy of this new wine as we recognize what Jesus does inside us once his spirit indwells us. Remember that Jesus took water, dirty water, in these large stoneware pots that, that was not fit for drinking. It's like, it was like the, you know, the, the water you know, in the bathroom in an airplane. And there's a little sign that says, do not drink the water. <laughs> That's this kind of water. It was, it was used for washing people's hands. And Jesus took that water that dirty water, and and transformed it into something clean and new and scintillating and invigorating and beautiful. And Jesus can take the water in our lives that is dirty, colored, polluted in some way, and make it clean and, and, and new and dazzlingly beautiful and enlivening. He can do that. And when we understand how Jesus is transforming our life, that understanding can bring joy. John Newton was a slave trader, so he was involved with human trafficking. He lived in the 18th and early part of the 19th century. He met Jesus, and he wrote that great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. John Newton once said, I'm not the person that I want to be. I'm not the person that I hope to be. But I'm not the person that I used to be. In other words, he recognized that even though he wasn't all that he wanted to be, he was not the person that he once was, that that Jesus was changing him. And when, when we recognize that Jesus is transforming us, there is joy in that knowledge. And Jesus not only changes us in terms of our character, But Jesus can change our perspective so that we will be able to see the things that once brought us sorrow and anguish as perhaps the seedlings of future joy. Recently, I was listening to a podcast hosted by the CNN news person, Anderson Cooper. And Anderson Cooper was describing how in the wake of his mother Gloria's death, he was feeling really sad and and lonely. And so he decided to reach out to Stephen Colbert, the host of The Late Show. He had heard that Colbert, when he was just 10 years old, had tragically lost his father and his two older teenage brothers. And Anderson himself had lost his own dad when he was just 10 years old. Anderson was wondering if Colbert would be willing to talk with him, and Colbert agreed. As you may know, Stephen Colbert is devoted to Christ. He is a devout Catholic. And in the portion of the interview you're about to see, Anderson will reference something that Colbert had previously said, quote, what punishments of God are not gifts? And and Colbert, when he said that in a previous conversation, is actually citing J.R.R. Tolkien, who said, What punishments of God are not gifts? Tolkien believed in God as well. And he believed that God could redeem anything and everything, including our painful moments. So let's uh, see part of this interview with Anderson and Stephen Colbert. You told an interviewer uh, that you have learned to, in your words, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Um, 
I remember. You went on. You went on to say, uh, "What what punishments of God are not gifts?" Do you really believe that? Yes. It's a gift to exist. It's a gift to exist, and with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. If you are grateful for your life, then you have to be grateful for all of it. At a young age, I suffered something so that by the time I was in serious relationships in my life with friends or with my wife or with my children is that I have some understanding that everybody is suffering and however imperfectly acknowledge their suffering and to connect with them and to love them in a deep way that not only accepts that all of us suffer, but also then makes you grateful for the fact that you have suffered so that you can know that about other people. I want to be the most human I can be. And that involves acknowledging and ultimately being grateful for the things that I wish didn't happen because they gave me a gift. As Stephen Colbert reflects on his life experience, through the lens of his relationship with God, he can actually say, I'm, I'm grateful for the things that I wish most didn't happen, even though those things weren't good, even those things that were painful, because they also gave me a gift. His great losses helped him to see that existence itself, being alive, is such a gift. He would later recognize that his suffering enabled him to empathize more with others because everyone at some level, as he said, is suffering. He can better connect with other human beings. He also said that his suffering has made him more human. And when we are in relationship with God, not only does he transform us, but he also transforms the way we see things. And we can see things that, that may have been painful in and of themselves and bad in and of themselves, but we see that a gift emerges in their wake. As Paul writes in Romans 8.28, we can know that all things are working together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so we can know the joy of new wine as we yield to Jesus, as his presence comes into our life and as it transforms us and the way we see things. And finally, from this encounter that Jesus has with this couple and these people at the wedding, we can know the joy of our anticipated future, our ultimate wedding feast. You know, when I'm with a couple that are about to be married, they're often experiencing joy at the prospect of their anticipated wedding. And then at the wedding or at the reception, people who are single may be wondering, will I ever be married myself? Or they may be envisioning what that day could look like, might look like if that were to happen. The scriptures teach that whether we are single or married, that one day, if we belong to God, we will experience an ultimate wedding feast as we are united with God, the most joyous being in the universe. Little aside here. In the world to come, according to the Bible, people will not be married because our union with God will far surpass any human marriage such that even the greatest of marriages on earth will simply be a faint shadow of our relationship with God in the world to come. A preacher named Edmund Clowney 
writes that as people were enjoying the wine there in Cana, Jesus was probably sipping a kind of bitter cup in a manner of speaking as he anticipated his own death so that we would not know that particular bitterness. Here's what Clowney writes. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast there in Cana, sipping the coming sorrow so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Let me repeat that. Jesus sat there in Cana amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, meaning his death, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Because Jesus drank the cup of sorrow on the cross and died as a sacrifice for our sins, it means that they can be washed away. It means that we can enter into a life with God now, but an even greater life with God in the world to come. John, the author of this gospel, says in the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that the people of God one day, and he's obviously using metaphor, will be adorned like a beautiful bride, ready to meet their maker. And on that day, there will be no more mourning, no more tears, just joy. And so we can know the joy of Jesus's presence in our lives now of new wine, but we can also know the joy that comes from anticipating our ultimate wedding feast with God. So what to do, what to do? Mary says, do what he tells you. Yield to him. Yield to him and know the wonder of new wine in your life now. The wine of Jesus' presence. But also know the joy that comes from anticipating that the best is yet to come. Let's pray together. Perhaps you would say, Jesus, guide me. Speak to me and help me to do what you lead me to. Help me to obey. And as you yield your life to Jesus, maybe even in this moment you would want to say, I don't understand it all, but I give you my life. I surrender my life to you. And, and then invite Jesus' new wine, the wine of his spirit, to fill you, to fill your cup, even as you lift it up to him. Perhaps you would pray, fill my cup, Lord, and help me to know your vitality, your new life, your joy. Your cleansing, your newness. And may it be so for us, in the strong and transformative name of Jesus. Amen.